Hello and welcome. My name is Mike. I'm the pastor at Watch It Baptist Church and you're watching WBC Online. It's great to have you with us. We're looking for a few weeks now at wisdom. We're going to be looking at it from a biblical point of view, trying to get a sense of what God means by wisdom and what the Bible is trying to teach us about wisdom. It's perhaps not surprising that we'll be referring to Proverbs quite a bit in this series. If you go back a few weeks, you can see the kind of preface, the, the opening gambit, if you like, in this series, which is a um, poetic interpretation of a passage from Proverbs 3. And we're going to be coming back to that passage as we go through this sequence. I'm going to be talking in a moment uh, before I read from Proverbs 3. Uh, but before we do any of that, let's pray first. Lord, we put ourselves in your hands and in your care, trusting that you will minister to us, that you will be good to us through the word, your revelation of yourself and your interaction with humanity, which is the Bible. And we pray that you would give us your spirit so that we might have insight and be inspired as we listen. Amen. Okay, so this first part is called Wisdom and the Bible. The idea is to give us a kind of biblical perspective on wisdom as we start. The first thing I want to do is talk about burritos. I don't know if you like a burrito or have ever had a burrito, if you're an absolute devotee of burritos, or if you don't even know what a burrito is. There is a game apparently called Throw Throw Burrito, which has very little to do with burritos as food, which is what they are, and much more to do with throwing bits of plush fabric around the room. I'll ask me about that later if you'd like to. Uh, I'll tell you what I know, which isn't very much. Burritos are a way of serving food. They are associated with Mexican cuisine, particularly street food in Mexico. The idea is that you get various bits of ingredients, usually some meat and some beans and some rice and some other bits and pieces too. And you wrap them all up in a kind of uh, flatbread, I suppose. Uh, and once it's all together and you've wrapped it all up, that is your burrito. And it has the ends folded over. So when it's given to you, you can't see any of the inside. You can just see this parcel with bread around it, with a wrap around it. And then you bite into it and it tastes amazing. And lots of it oozes down your chin and falls all over the place and ruins your clothes. But it tastes fantastic. Now, what you can do with a burrito uh, these days, particularly uh, I've come across it um, in, the, in, a, in a Mexican food chain, uh, called tortilla or tortilla, is to have what they call a naked burrito. Now, that just means that it's everything that you'd expect to be wrapped up in the wrap, in the bread, but there's no bread. There's a kind of a, a bowl or a dish that you put it all in. So all the other bits go in and all those mix of flavours work exactly the same way, but there's no bread to wrap it up in. Now, a wrapped burrito looks amazing. It, quite often when you go to somewhere that will sell you a burrito, you get to watch them putting it together. And you see them putting all this stuff in, and then you see them wrap it up, and you think, how on earth can they get it all in that amount of space? How can they wrap it up so tightly and not have the bread tear and various things like that? 
I, I'm always very impressed. Maybe for some of you guys, it's something that you're very good at, but I, I tend to look on in, in astonishment. So it looks all nice and tidy until that point, as I said before, when you eat them, as soon as you eat them, all that stuff that's wrapped up tight isn't wrapped up tight anymore. And so bits start falling out. And actually, as you eat your way down the burrito, quite often a lot, a lot of bits and pieces or, or the juice or whatever it might be comes away at the bottom. And you end up with, if you're eating it over a plate, you end up with like a bonus bit that you can have at the end of all the stuff that's fallen out. Mm. So it looks fantastic. It looks really well wrapped up. But in actual fact, as soon as you get going with it, it gets all messy. But your naked burrito doesn't get messy. It's all there to see. None of it's hidden away. None of it's wrapped up. All the goodness is there. And you get to see it all from the start. And you get to use a fork. And so it doesn't make so much of a mess. Now, why am I talking about burritos and how they work? Well, this may, may be something that you need to just stay with me for. I think there's a real connection between what happens with the burrito that's wrapped and what happens with knowledge without wisdom. It's not that the wisdom is like the wrap. It's more like the wisdom is like the bowl. So you don't want the wrap for wisdom. You want the bowl. So that as you work with knowledge, as you get to learn and understand things, as you go through life picking up what it's what it's giving you in terms of experiences and teaching points and harsh realities, that actually what you want to be able to do is see it for what it is, not have it wrapped up and tucked away, not pretend that it's not really there or hope that you can keep it hidden because ultimately it will all fall out if you try. Maybe, maybe I'm stretching that metaphor a little bit, but... The thing I'm driving at is this. Wisdom is essential. The Bible believes it's essential and it should be chased after and pursued and longed for and worked for. And that very often the way that church around us, particularly in the West, because that's what I'm familiar with, uh, as, it's, as it's dealt with understanding, with knowledge, has tended to present the world as more like a burrito in a wrap. So let's pretend that, it, that the, the reality of life is tidy. Let's pretend that um, it's all wrapped up neat until actually somebody starts getting stuck in and then we see it for what it truly is, which is full of goodness, but actually a lot messier than sometimes we're ready for. Now, if you end up thinking, well, that was a bit of a rubbish metaphor, Mike, um, you know, crack on with something else, you're in luck because I'm out to do exactly that. I think it's important for us to recognise that wisdom is not a, not a tight and easy thing to define. I'm going to have a, a little reference to a couple of things about wisdom. So dictionary.com describes wisdom like this, the quality or state of being wise, knowledge of what is true or right, coupled with just judgment as to action. Then it also wants to use the words sagacity, discernment or insight. I think sagacity is a wonderful word. I'm not quite sure exactly how 
to use it in this situation. So I'm going to stick with discernment and insight. I think they are useful words for us to consider. There was an um, uh, essay, a paper written in 2008 that identified three types of wisdom, or, or rather it recognised that scholars had identified three types of wisdom, and they are these. Cognitive wisdom, that that's, involves knowledge and the ability to think critically. Reflective wisdom, that involves introspection and self-awareness. And thirdly, compassionate wisdom, which involves empathy and concern for others. Interestingly, I think when it comes to the way the Bible talks about wisdom, it's really looking to include all three of those. So I think in some ways that's quite a helpful description. But Albert Einstein put it this way. Any fool can know. The point is to understand. Now, if you spend any time reading newspapers, watching television news programmes, um, even sometimes watching documentaries, particularly those that you find exclusively on the internet, uh, or if you've spent any time on social media, you'll know that lots of people know things. Some of them know lots of things. But their ability to understand, and particularly to understand the wider context of the knowledge, is sometimes missing. Any fool can know things. The point is to understand. And I, I found that quote when I was looking for quotes about wisdom. It doesn't mention wisdom directly, but I thought it was a good way, again, of um, understanding what wisdom is. The poet Alfred Lord Tennyson wrote this, knowledge comes, but wisdom lingers. Information will come and go. But when you come across somebody who is wise in how they handle information or their understanding of the world, that's special. That's wisdom. And wise people are attractive because of their ability to handle information in a particular way. Again, in my search for quotes about wisdom, I found this one, which again doesn't mention wisdom exactly, but it's from Tolkien. And he writes, never laugh at live dragons. I really love that one. There's something in it that says that, that wisdom isn't just about knowing what's in front of you. It's also about knowing how to respond to it. And in this case, so that you don't wind it up and the dragon ends up um, yeah, roasting you alive, probably. So wisdom is more than just knowledge. Ecclesiastes says this, wisdom is better than folly, just as light is better than darkness. That seems to be the writer of Ecclesiastes uh, being very keen to say, isn't this blimmin' obvious? <laughs> Wisdom is better than foolishness. So we're going to head now into that passage, Proverbs 3, 13 to 26. So I'm going to read it in the New Living Translation. It says this. By wisdom, the Lord founded the earth by understanding he created the heavens. By his knowledge, the deep fountains of the earth burst forth and the dew settles beneath the night sky. My child, don't lose sight of common sense and discernment. Hang on to them for they will refresh your soul. They are like jewels on a necklace. They keep you safe on your way and your feet will not stumble. You can go to bed without fear. You will lie down and sleep soundly. 
you need not be afraid of sudden disaster or the destruction that comes upon the wicked, for the Lord is your security. He will keep your foot from being caught in a trap. Now, I think from my point of view, one of the most significant points in that is in verse 21, where the writer talks about common sense and discernment. And in verse 24, where he says, you can go to bed without fear, you will lie down and sleep soundly. Wisdom isn't just about having the information, it's also about what you do with it and how you process it. It's about how you handle it and handle it with others. And so we get to a point where we recognise, because of the way that passage describes wisdom, that wisdom isn't really just about knowledge, and so it isn't just about rules. And this is where I want to go back to my burrito, kind of. Wisdom isn't a neat package like a burrito. Wisdom doesn't come like that. It comes in a sprawling mess, but one that we're able to get our heads around, not necessarily to know all the answers to, but to be able to say, yes, I've got a perspective on this. That, I think, is why wisdom is so highly prized in the Bible, because it's about what we do with what we know, what we do with the world that happens around us. I think the next thing I want to ask is whether it's possible for us to be wise without the Bible. And I ask that question because this idea of common sense and discernment isn't limited to those who know God or who follow Jesus. Interestingly, as you look into the book of Proverbs and the way it describes wisdom, it does become apparent that the desire to seek wisdom is like the opposite of what the Bible often refers to as scoffers, those who think they've got the answers, and so they scoff at those who are still trying to develop and learn. And that also the Bible's idea of wisdom is tied up with how God thinks the world is supposed to work, how the designer designed things, how the creator meant for things to be. I think with that in mind, it's important just to pop back to the opening of that passage. By wisdom, the Lord founded the earth by understanding he created the heavens. Wisdom is being talked about here as creator. And that's interesting on two different levels. One, because in Genesis 1, creation is done through the spirit. And the other is because in John 1, which admittedly is written much later, creation is done through the word, which is Jesus. And so we can see not so much that wisdom is being equated with Jesus here, but that actually God is wisdom. Maybe in a similar way to which um, John in 1 John says God is love. There is an essential characteristic in him. It isn't just about knowing things. It's about how to put that knowledge into practice. It's about knowing how best things might overlap and weave together. And surely if you're creating the universe, or as Proverbs um, specifies, founding the earth and creating the sky, that's the heavens, if you're doing that in a way that you think is going to be most effective, then wisdom is absolutely essential. And it's that awareness of how things fit together and how they don't 
that really gives us a sense of how wisdom works. This means that wisdom could be um, simply described as seeing things the way God sees them. So there are places, particularly in Proverbs, uh, but also across the Old Testament, where we're encouraged not to lean on how we understand things, but to turn instead to how God sees them. Look at the world through the lens of God's perspective, and you'll be much closer to seeing how wisdom works. And this can be quite challenging because the Bible is very often seen as a rule book rather than a perspective book. Why do we need wisdom if God's given us other rules to live by? Surely we just follow the rules and, and then we'll be okay. And I think wisdom perhaps gives us a different perspective on that. I'd even go as far as to say that very often when God gives us rules, he's looking to do two things. One is to instruct us, but the second and I'd say very important one is to give us a sense of what the world looks like through his eyes. So in, uh, where are we? In Leviticus 19, we get this. You shall keep my statues, this is God's voice. You shall not let your cattle breed with a different kind. You shall not sow your field with two kinds of seed, nor shall you wear a garment of cloth made of two kinds of material. You've probably come across this idea as before that there's this odd instruction in the Old Testament that we shouldn't wear clothing that has two different kinds of material in it. So, so go um, out the window goes the cotton linen blend, which people like to wear in the summer when it's really hot, or the use of sort of summer cotton and some nylon or um, whatever else it might be, because God says no. Actually, most of us are comfortable doing that, and we bring wisdom to that instruction. We don't see it as uh, a rule that is um, inflexible. We see it for what it is. Maybe we don't necessarily always understand why it is, but what it is we have a sense of. So as the Israelites came out of Egypt, out of slavery, and came into their own home, the land that God had promised them, God says, look, there's all kinds of things the Egyptians did that were bound up with the way that they lived their lives, which was in turn bound up with how they followed their gods. We maybe will have a look another time after this series is done about the significance of the 10 plagues in the book of Exodus and how each one picks off a different um, Egyptian god to show that Yahweh, the god of the Israelites, is greater than each of them in their, in their specific field. Um, but it, you know, God is saying, Look, the Israelites had ways of doing things that were bound up with how they worshipped, bound up with their worldview, and you are not to share that. You are to break from those patterns because I want you to not live how they lived. I want you to live how you live, following my lead, because I know what's best for you, and I know how humanity is supposed to work. I think a lot of what we see, Old and New Testament, is God coming back to his people and saying, look, I do know how this is supposed to work, you know. I did make it, and I'm in a position to direct you, to signpost you towards better ways. Now, whether that's something that's in the immediate situation, like you were in Egypt but don't do as the Egyptians do, or whether it's something that, that has you know, a, a longer shelf life, if you like, 
you know, that, that will vary according to the circumstances. And we'll have a look at what that variation means as we go through these uh, talks. So there's a real passion for God as he instructs his people, as he gives them rules to draw them away from idolatry, to draw them away from practices which distract them from him. And so they are very often signposts for the way to travel. I don't think that's always the case, but I think a lot of the time when God is giving us rules, he's trying to point us in a way to travel rather than saying, we've well, used to sit still and follow the instructions or we'll be well. We see throughout the Bible that that's not really God's way. He's not very static and he doesn't encourage his people to be static either. Okay, so wisdom then is perhaps more about reading the moment, taking God's principles, the way he sees the world and applying them to a situation that you come across that you are face to face with. And I'm just gonna highlight this. Uh, in a couple of ways, as uh, and then we'll close and then we'll ask our questions. So in Proverbs 26, 4 to 5, this is um, in its way quite a famous couple of verses, and you may have heard me refer to them before. In Proverbs 26, 4 to 5, we get these two sentences, and they are written as instructions. Okay, I'm going to read both one after the other. I'm not going to stop between Proverbs 26, 4 and 5. Do not answer a fool according to his folly, or you yourself will be just like him. Answer a fool according to his folly, or he will be wise in his own eyes. And those two verses say different things about how to handle the same kind of person. If a fool is being foolish, he's in his folly, he's talking in a foolish way. Don't answer him or you'll be just like him. Don't go down to his level and talk foolishness with him. Next sentence, always respond to a fool who's being foolish or he will think he's smart. So what do you do? Do you not answer him or do you answer him? You've got two different instructions that immediately follow each other. Now, as you read what the scholarship says about this, you get various different perspectives, but coming through in the middle of it is something which I think is really helpful, which is this. Both those instructions are right, but in different situations. Some fools will need you to walk away from what they won't need. You will need to just walk away from them and not get involved, because if you do, you'll just get stuck in something which is a waste of time. You'll end up having a foolish conversation with a foolish person. In other situations, you're going to need to respond to that foolishness and say, I'm not standing for that. I'm not just going to let that be said. I'm going to come back on it so that the fool doesn't go away thinking he's got it right. He's understood it correctly. So both are correct. How can that be the case if the Bible is mostly about giving us rules? Possibly then what the writer of Proverbs does, who is the same guy who describes what wisdom is, what he's doing is saying, look, you're going to face situations where you're going to need to work out what the right thing is to do. Both these instructions will be appropriate at different times. He may also have said to the same people he was writing to then, and we believe that Proverbs was a kind of syllabus for training um, uh, aristocratic, mostly uh, young men in how to be leaders. So he, the same writer might well have said, you remember that rule from, uh, from Leviticus about not wearing cloth of two different types at the same time? That, that was about that situation 
and, and it may be that you don't need to worry too much about having cloth that's woven from two things anymore. Second example, and this is from Deuteronomy, though I can't remember the, the reference, um, where it says, if parents have a stubborn and rebellious son who won't listen to their instruction, they are to take him to the city gates, which is where the city council would meet, present him to the elders, that's the council, and say, we have a stubborn son and he's not listening to us and he's behaving badly. And, says Deuteronomy, those elders, that city council, will stone that son to death. Now, if you're looking for advice from the Bible on how to raise children, you're going to come across that one. You're going to think, well, it would seem that if my son is rebellious and stubborn, I probably should hand him over to the local authorities and insist that they kill him. That would seem an odd approach to parenting, yeah? Um, so I suspect that that approach would make sense for a particular time and place. Wisdom tells us that we don't apply that the same way now as when the instruction was given. Wisdom might tell us that we might need to get other people involved in how we parent. And actually, sometimes other voices will be more powerful than the parent's voice, depending on such situation and the way that the child's behaving or whatever it might be. But it's not just as simple as saying when you find an instruction in the Bible, you stick to it by the letter. What you need to do is you need to bring God's view to how that works and God's view on why it was important when it was important. Otherwise, how on earth do we make sense of those two instructions in Proverbs 26 being side by side? I want to sum up by saying this. It's not possible, I don't think, to be truly wise without searching for God's perspective. I think that's what the Bible is telling us. If you want to underpin your idea of wisdom, and wisdom is something that, that Proverbs 3 and places of other places as well say we should be seeking. If we want to apply wisdom, we start by thinking, what does God make of this? What do we know of his character? How do we apply that understanding to the situation that we face? How do we apply the character of God to the world around us? Let's pray, and then we'll ask our three questions. Father God, we thank you for the richness of wisdom that you have and by which you made the world and us in it. We thank you for the richness of wisdom that you encourage us to pursue. And we thank you that you give us insight into what you are like so that we might be wise by understanding how you see things. Amen. Right then, question one is this. Who would you say are the three wisest people in the Bible and why? Why have you chosen those three? Who are the three wisest and why? Question two, how do you respond when the Bible seems to say odd or possibly even opposite things? How do you respond? How do you handle it when you seem to get two different things that don't quite marry up? And question three, what can we do to seek God's perspective on the things that are happening around us, the situations that we face?
Okay, that's it for me. That's the end of part one in this series. I look forward to catching up with you again soon and we'll look at part two. Take care and God bless.